Good morning, church. It's good to see you back. If you have your Bibles, won't you please open up to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And as promised, we're continuing our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. And um, I started with the introduction last week. And uh, I must say, I am in awe of the task <laughs> laid before me. But I'm trusting that God is going to speak this morning because I have been so stirred this week with what he's put on my heart. And I want to remind you where we are as a church. Some of you were not able to attend our summit. That's okay. I'm going to bring you up to speed now. There are three things we feel the Lord calling us back to this morning. The first is loving up. It's loving three dimensions. It's coming back first and foremost to our first love. What Lawrence was talking about this morning in losing your hallelujah, what he was really talking about is having lost your first love. So many of us here knew what it was like to be burning with a passion for Jesus. Some stage in your life, not so. You could not stop saying hallelujah. Praise the Lord. You knew how much he'd forgiven you. You knew how much he'd rescued you. You knew how much his goodness had kept you, but that love has grown cold. That's what it means to have lost your hallelujah in your life. You can look back and say, God, I long for you again. I want to come back to my first love. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, my friend, you are not yet a Christian, and you've come to the right morning to hear how to be one. A Christian is someone to whom Jesus is precious. Why? Because you know how much you need him. Salvation is understanding what you're really like. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And if Jesus has never been precious to you, if Jesus has just been a church, if Jesus has just been a religion, if Jesus has just been a name being called Christian, I'm telling you, you are not yet saved. Because a person who is saved understands how precious Jesus is to their salvation. That apart from him, they've got nothing. That's why we sing hallelujah. Not because Lawrence tells up and tells us, you must sing hallelujah. But because of who Jesus is to us. The second dimension of love God is calling us back to is to love in, to return to each other. And the third is to love out, to return to a genuine concern for the outsider. And friends in church this morning, it's important, you know, whenever God starts talking about love, he starts talking about the heart. And so if you've just joined us as a church this year, I want to say to you, you have come at the most exciting time that we are experiencing as a church because God is dealing with us in our hearts. And let me tell you, I know from experience, it's not fun to look at your heart. Can I put it to you this morning that in actual fact, most of life is trying to run away from the reality of what we are really like inside. And this morning, you're going to see that this Sermon on the Mount uncovers stuff that makes us feel uncomfortable. But we welcome it. Don't worry, it's my little boy, Elijah. I was hoping my wife would get through a sermon, but she didn't. But remember this. Church, we must be open to whatever Jesus wants to tell us. If you are only here because you want him to fit into a little part of the box, be careful this morning, he's going to blow it open. 
If you're coming this morning having one little tiny view of Jesus and thinking, well, I've just got to fit this in, let me tell you now he's going to smash it. The Sermon on the Mount is not a pep talk. It is about being transformed into the likeness of Christ. And I tell you, it is the most exciting time for us as a church. But we are exposed before you this morning. Let me tell you, what God is talking to us about, it's not pretty, but it's real. We care because we believe God is real and he does real life. And we're excited to receive it. And I want to say to you this morning, if you knew, maybe you're not quite sure what this church thing's all about, you've come to the right place. Be open to whatever Jesus says today. And I tell you, you will be changed, just like we need to be as a church. And I want to remind you this morning that as we read, the motivation of this Sermon on the Mount is one thing. Let's read together in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. There was a moment in Jesus' ministry. We see just seeing the crowds... Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed, blessed, happy, congratulated are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This sermon was birthed in a moment when Jesus had thousands of people following him, and he did something specific. He went up onto the mountainside away from everybody. And ah, guess who came after him? His disciples. The disciples are people, were people who were followers of Jesus. They wanted to be close to Jesus. If your desire is not to be close to Jesus or to have more of him, the sermon's not for you. This sermon is for those people who want a passion to be close to him. They were called disciples. And may I put it to you this morning, that is what a Christian is, we said last week. A Christian is a disciple first and foremost. The name Christian came later. A disciple is somebody who follows. And a Christian is a person who follows Jesus. Full stop. That's it. And the name Christian was the greatest compliment played to the church. It came much later when the Christians were in Antioch. Because this person, Jesus, so came to characterize their lifestyle and their passion and their pursuits, what they were as a a community, they were called Christians. Before, they were just called disciples. My friend, the greatest compliment paid to you is if you are called a Christian, not because of your heritage or because of your mom or dad telling you. It is when people see Jesus in you and they can say, there's a follower of Christ. And I have to ask you this morning again, and I will most likely ask ask you this question every week, because I have to ask myself this question every day. Have you settled that pursuing Christ is going to be your driving motivation in this life? Have you settled it? Because the first thing we see in this sermon in Matthew chapter 5 verse 3 is there is such a thing as the kingdom of heaven. And if we don't see this, the whole sermon is not going to make any sense. Friends, this morning, God is interested in one thing, whether or not you are a citizen in this kingdom of heaven, and secondly, whether you are seeking this kingdom of heaven. That's all that matters to him. God does not care about your bank balance. God does not care about the makeup on your face and how presentable you look to the world around you. God does not care how good your kids are or how well they're doing at school. What matters to him is, are you a citizen in the kingdom of heaven and are you seeking it above all else? And if you are not motivated, that's the thing. If you're not motivated by what is coming, you won't pay any attention to what is in this sermon. 
You see, 1 John 2 verse 15 to 17 has to sober us up. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Why? Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Your heart can only love one thing at a time. And if you are so consumed with the love of this world, we cannot love God. And what is the love of this world? He goes on to say, for all that is in this world, the desires of the flesh, your appetites, the lusts of your flesh, and the desires of your eyes, the things that you look in this world and you crave and you covet, and pride in possessions. It's this attitude of thinking we are so much to God because we have so much. Friends, that is a worldly way of thinking. And it says here, it is not from the Father. That way of thinking is not from God. It is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Ah, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This sermon starts out by saying, what are you motivated by in your life? Because if it is status in this world, if it is applause in this world, if it is comfort in this world, this world is passing away. And the thing that's going to stand is this coming king and his kingdom. And this king's name's Jesus. And Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 3, you have to enter into this kingdom. You're not born in it. I can tell you the most helpful thing for us in his learning is understanding. Just because you were born and attended Sunday school does not make you a Christian. A Christian is somebody that has undergone the most radical transformation that can happen in this life. It is called being born again. It is massive. Pay attention to me quickly because if you don't understand this point, you won't understand the sermon. This sermon's not a law. This is not good advice. This is telling you what the outworking of this massive transformation in your life is. You are not your old self if you're a Christian. The old is gone. The new has come. You are a totally new person on the inside. And this is the game changer. Is that you are a citizen of an entirely different kingdom. You are not of this world. Don't think like it. Don't be motivated by it. You're going to lose it says, if you do not experience what it means to seek first the kingdom, everything you invest in this life, it's going to be gone. Ah, but what does the Sermon on the Mount teach us? It teaches us to be ready as we seek the kingdom. Ready for what? Ready for the coming king. You know, one thought that's been on my mind in preparation for this Sunday is, as one of your elders... I am going to present you to Christ. You are going to meet Jesus. And let me tell you, I am here this morning because I believe God is calling to me everything I can to make sure you are thinking about that day because what you think about that day determines about how you live now. This kingdom shapes everything. This king is the one that's going to come and you're going to stand before him. And let me tell you now, everything you have sought to do for him will stand forever. Oh, we are not only to enter into this kingdom, we are called to inherit it. And when do you get your inheritance? When somebody dies. 
when your body dies, you're going to stand before Jesus. And on that day, he wants to give you something. It was the promised land to the Israelites. Jesus has promises for you. He has work for you to do. And it's work that has been predestined for you before the foundation of the world. He saved you. Not that you can just be with him, but that you can walk with him. And on that day, church, unless we are starting to fix our eyes on what is unseen, I don't care what the world says about you. It matters nothing. Some of us are so concerned here about how little money we have. To Jesus, it matters nothing. Some of us are so concerned that our marriages are in a mess. Let me tell you now, to God, He doesn't see as the world sees. The world might say, oh, look at you. You're so rejected. You're so pathetic. You're so nothing. If that's you this morning, you are ready for the gospel. Do you know why? Because you're ready for this first beatitude, which says, I don't have it all together. Church, I'm jumping here, but you've got to know, we inherit what God wants to give us through total obedience to Jesus, full stop. That's it. And the point of this sermon, it's the most exciting thing, is it's going to train us in how to enter into the kingdom of heaven, how to lay hold of the kingdom of heaven. It's going to help us become more and more like Jesus. That's what this is all about. And this is the point of the Sermon on the Mountain. So why? Have you ever thought to yourself, why does Jesus start with these Beatitudes, they're called? I'll explain to you what that term means in a moment. It is because what we are going to look at, there's about eight of them, over this next eight weeks or so, is that these Beatitudes are the marks, the characteristics of what a disciple of Jesus looks like. They are spiritual. This is what God is going to do in you when you make Jesus the passion and pursuit of your life. This is what's going to start happening in you. And my friend, it is the mark of the working of the Holy Spirit. You'll hear me say the word anointing often from the pulpit. Anointing means this. this these beatitudes are what a person looks like when the anointing of the Spirit is working in their life. And the anointing means this. It is the empowering, supernatural empowering and work of the Spirit in your life. And the easiest example I can use is, you will notice some Sundays I will have such power. But other Sundays I'll have so little. And you'll say, geez, Matt really wasn't on form this week. I'll tell you what the difference is. What I seek after, it is the anointing. I can prepare as much as I like, but when the Holy Spirit starts to move and starts to come in power upon what I have to say and what the Word of God says, you will notice it immediately. Not so. And I'll tell you this, a good preacher, I'll give you a bit of insight. Preaching is the most humbling thing. Because a good preacher is sometimes a bad one. Because I don't always have the anointing. Pray for me. Pray for Joe at the Ridge. What we are doing here is not by the level of nature. I'm not coming in my own strength and preaching these words. I'm trusting that the power of the Spirit is going to come upon you and change you. Because don't forget, whatever the Holy Spirit touches, He changes. That's why salvation enters us into the big league because we get the Spirit. What I'm talking about here, we're blessed are the poor in spirit. I'm not talking about a person's temperament. I'm not talking about somebody who's shy or retiring or self-deprecating. These are supernatural marks of the Spirit in a person's life. 
And secondly, they are not application points. You don't apply them to your life. Please, please don't pray, Jesus, make me poor in spirit. It comes as a byproduct of you following Jesus, and I'll explain to you in a moment. Please don't pray that prayer. I have already. It's painful. Not helpful. They are not application points. When you see these things in your life, you know you are going after Jesus. That is why blessed, that word blessed actually means in the Greek, congratulations. Blessed. It even means lucky, lucky you. God is working in you. When you start to see yourself being emptied of yourself and you start seeing yourself becoming poor in spirit, you jump up and down. You say, blessed, congratulations, because God is at work. You're moving forward in the kingdom. And my friend, this is the place of wonderful peace. It can be so painful, but let me tell you, this crazy thing in the Christian life is you can have pain and peace. You can let go and gain. It's a space of recognizing what the beatitude, the, the word beatitude means. It's so beautiful. If you look at the dictionary definition of beatitude, it means supreme blessedness. Isn't that wonderful? So many of us here are looking for happiness. My entire industry, pharmacy, is built on happiness. Can I give you some insights? If you want to start experiencing joy that nobody can take away, it's here. Supreme, supreme blessedness. And so this is how we go. They have to frame the entire Sermon on the Mount. You notice Jesus does not ask us to do anything yet. He has to work out. Can you see? Can you see what your motivation is? Because if you don't see these things in your life, you're not seeking me. It's so helpful. It's so brilliant. Jesus is the best teacher. I wish you had him this morning to teach it. He is so clever. He understands. Before you tell somebody what to do, you have to sort out the heart. And so he's saying, this is why it's congratulations to you disciples. When you start to see these things in you, oh, you are moving forward. And the way we think about all of his commands are framed by these beautiful statements of the Beatitudes. It has to affect the way we interpret and see everything. These have to be in operation in our lives first before we start doing anything for him. And they follow a pattern. Oh, wow. They follow such an out-of-this-world pattern. Is they first and foremost move, as I said last week, from discomfort to blessing. That's why I say, will you be willing to embrace the discomfort of God wants to show us this morning so that we can embrace the blessing? Secondly, they are a ladder. I know some of you are waiting for me to get to the beatitude. Just wait a moment, okay? <laughs> this is very important. The first is this, or the second pattern we see, is unless this poverty of spirit happens in you, you can't go to the next one. Unless you see what you are really like, you can't truly mourn. Unless you really are confronted with what you really like, you can't truly be meek because you want to fight back. And when you actually see what you really like, that's the moment when you start hungering and thirsting for righteousness because you know you're so far from it. It is a ladder. As you let the Holy Spirit work these things out, you go higher and higher. Let me point out what the highest one is. It's when you are so like Jesus, people persecute you because it's as if he is in their presence. Let me tell you, the world does not love Jesus by nature. You are so transformed. People see Christ. 
And so this is it. Not only is it a ladder, but it is a building. And this is the beauty of it. Is that just like a building has a foundation that has to be in place all the time in order to build on top of it. You never graduate from a beatitude. It operates in your life from the moment you become a Christian to the moment you die and go to be with Jesus. This poverty of spirit never leaves you. It's always in operation. And if it ever stops, as I'm going to point out shortly, we're in trouble. We build on the one thing to the next and we move higher and higher as we embrace it. And that is why now, I'm telling you why I'm taking so long to get to this beatitude. It's because unless we understand this is the starting point, this is the foundation of it all, the next, I don't know how long we're going to preach on this for, will be a closed book to you. So, with the time I have left, what does it mean, this first beatitude of blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is this. It begins with seeing what we are really like face to face before God. I'll say it again. Being poor in spirit begins when we see what we are really like face to face before God. And note that spirit is a small s. You must pay attention to every dot and comma in your Bible. It means what we look like on the inside. It's not about the Holy Spirit. The whole point, and this is my, the crux of my entire argument with you this morning, is that this face-to-faceness with God shows us what we are really like on the inside. It is what God sees. Right now, who you are is what God sees. No one else can truly see it. And let me put it this way, it is the hardest for us to see. You know what God sees when he looks into your heart and mine? Is he sees absolute poverty. I'll say it again. Do you know what God sees when he looks into your heart and mine? He sees absolute poverty. In the Gospel of Luke, when he gives a much shorter summary of the Sermon on the Mount, Luke doesn't even bother to say poor in spirit. He just says, blessed are you who are poor, socioeconomically. Blessed are you who have little, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Let me tell you now what poverty in Jesus' day meant. Being poor in Jesus' day was not having the Xbox number 17 or the BMW 5, not 7. Do you know what it's like to be poor in Jesus' day? And we see it so often here in East London. It is somebody who does not have sufficient good food to stay healthy. In Israel, farmers were not allowed to cut all the way to the margins of their crops, nor to pick up all of the gleaned ears on the ground because the poor would come and pick up the scraps. Otherwise they die. Being poor in Jesus' day was to not have sufficient clothes to protect your dignity. You barely had enough to cover your nakedness. You'll be freezing cold in winter. You'll be dirty and sweaty in summer. Being poor in Jesus' day meant you had no shelter to store your possessions. There was no place for refuge. 
here we think about our big cities. We've got little alcoves where the poor find shelter. In those days, cities did not exist like we have them today. You slept in the fields. You slept in caves. You were totally exposed. Is this the way you see yourself before God? Let me tell you what a poor person is. Is it someone in total need? It is somebody who is desperate. You don't know where your next meal is coming from. That's the kind of desperate state a poor person's in. You are totally honest. What can you hide behind? What you see is what you get. It is so humbling. When you are poor, you are totally dependent. So few of us here know what that's really like. If nobody reaches out their hand to help, you're a dead man. Total weakness. Is this the way you see yourself before God? You see, our difficulty here in this place is that we are so focused on how we look on the outside. That's our problem. We're not focused with the S, the spirit. This is our problem at Sterling because we think we're okay in the world. We're okay before God. We think because we also have status in the world, we have status with God. We think because we have the applause of the world, we have the applause of God. We think because we have the approval of the world around us, we have the approval of God. My friends, you are blind until you see your nakedness and poverty before a mighty God. We think we're okay. We think we've got it all together. We're so nice and neat here. Let me tell you, when God sees you, he sees brokenness. One Samuel chapter 16, verse 7 says this. When Samuel went to choose the next king, the first eldest son of Jesse, he thought he was so wonderful. Big abs, beautiful face, tall in stature. You know the thing that strikes me with fear when I read that verse? It says this. Oh, God. Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Why? Because he didn't have a heart for God. He was so consumed with himself. Who was the one you God raised up? Who was the person, David, who knew what he was like before God? What did David have said about him? There's a man after God's own heart. So together. Do you know what Jesus says about this attitude of thinking we're something in the world? He says to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, verse 44, How can you believe? How can you believe I'm the Messiah? How can you believe you really need me? Why? Because when you receive glory from one another, that's all we're interested in, is everybody around us saying, You're okay, you're great, are you so pretty, are you successful, you've got so much money, are you so together? Let me tell you, peel away my heart, peel away yours, we'll see ugliness. Nobody here has it together. And if that's your attitude coming in here, let me tell you now, God will resist you.
Matthew chapter 19, verse 23, is for us, Sterling. We are one of the wealthiest brackets in the world. 2% of the world's income brackets in terms of being wealthy. We think we don't have much. You just have to go to Uganda or Rwanda or Sudan. We have loads. This is the verse it says. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because if you think you've got clout on earth, you think you've got clout in heaven. You are nothing. I'm nothing. I'm nothing. Let me tell you now, I'm not trying to be nasty. I'm trying to help you see what you are really like. Because the sooner you can see what God sees, the sooner you can enter into the kingdom of heaven and inherit all he has for you. What need do you need for Jesus if you've got it so together? What I say to you, you won't receive. You'll think it's for the person next to you. No, no, no. We spend so much time making sure we are presentable to the world, but we are so unprepared for God. That's my heart. That's your heart. Can you cope with it? If you can't cope with it, and you want to push back against it, the kingdom of heaven is shut to you. See, the first and most important work of the Spirit in your life is to smash this inflated, incorrect image of ourselves. It's called pride. Pride. Do you know I did a course, a new creation course this last week. It's coming up in March. You've got to sign up. There's only like 10 spots available. We have, to, we have to circle. There's a point of what you call faces. Don't worry too much about what it means. You know, the one I didn't circle was pride. The man stood up and said, who have you circled pride? I wanted to climb under the desk. Here I am preaching of it. It's in my own heart. It is the hardest thing to see. Can you see it this morning? Because if you can, you are blessed. You are blessed. You're blessed. When you see you've got nothing to recommend you to Jesus, you are blessed because your heart is open to receive what he wants to give you. When you're so full of yourself, how can you have any need for Jesus? It is essential that God breaks us in a godly way. And if we don't have this, salvation is shut this morning. Until you see yourself as you really are, unless you become poor in spirit, you will not see your need for Jesus. Can I put it to you like this? If you have not grieved over your sin, you are not saved. Because you haven't seen it. That's how it works. Do you know, I was struck as I was typing this. I felt God said to me, Matthew, what does saved mean? You know, saved means you've been rescued from the coming judgment. Is that God is going to come in all of his glory and he might come and call you to himself before he comes in his fullness here on earth. But my friend, the thing he's going to ask you, the thing he's going to check is has your sin been paid for? And if you have no need for Jesus, 
You've got no covering for sin. Being saved means we are rescued. That's how you get your hallelujah back. Is you start to see what God has done. You know what happens as Christians? We start to get so used to the privileges of the kingdom of heaven. We take them for granted. We think saved is just a title that we talk about for people who attend church. People who attend small groups. We've been saved from judgment. Our sin has been paid for. We know we are sinners saved by grace. We know that Christ is precious to us because he's rescued us. How many of you feel like that? Come on, church. Come on. Let's not be afraid of what the Spirit shows us. Because it's only to give us Jesus. And if you have not yet grieved over sin in your life, you haven't seen it. That's how it works. And if you see your sin, you're ready for a Savior. That's how it works. It is wonderful. And the first beatitude, this being poor in spirit, it is necessary for sanctification. What is sanctification? Becoming holy. What does holy mean? Becoming more and more like Jesus. If we don't see our absolute depth of need before God, we don't think we need to change. How many of you here really think you need to change? We think we're so presentable before God. Oh, we've said the prayer. Oh, yes, we received Jesus. But you know what? I just had a few flaws. We are saved from fallenness. It's pride. We don't think we need to change. Sure, we might need to pray a bit more. Maybe I could improve on my Bible a bit. We've got to see how deep our need for Jesus goes. When last have you felt the need to change? The third thing is this. The first beatitude is essential for community. We're talking about loving in. Let me tell you what stops us loving in. It is sheer pride. What is the root of pride? I've got it so together, I don't need you. So many of us come here and we just learn ranges. We've been doing it for years. You know what the spirit of that is? I don't need to engage with anybody around me because I don't really need them. Can I tell you this morning? Here is Christ's hand. Here is Christ's foot. Here is Christ's leg. This is his body. Can you live without your lungs, your heart? Can you live without your feet, your hands? Can you go anywhere? Let me tell you now, you need your brothers and sisters more than you realize. But the root of pride is coming as thinking, Jesus is just for me. On my terms, in my space. I have got no concern for anybody else because I'm so full of myself. That's how it works. Got it so together. Let me tell you, the spiritual life, if you want to get serious in following Jesus, it is one of the most loneliest places if you choose to do it on your own. How can we say we love Jesus, but we don't love his body? How can we say we want Jesus, but we don't want our brothers and sisters? You are not so self-sufficient. How can we not love his bride? It's pride. 
And for too long, you guys have missed out, some of you. Because you're fine on your own. When the small group rollout roll out happens, when we talk about community in this church, let me tell you, it's not the fact that you don't want to join because you're shy or whatever. It's because you make no space for others because you don't need them. Let me tell you the last thing about the Sermon on the Mount before I get to the good stuff <laughs> is that until this poverty of spirit happens in you, you're not available to serve in the kingdom. Can I tell you why? Because you are so, and myself, am so consumed with ourselves, how can we see the need of anybody else? When we say we need children's ministry, and don't take this as a guilt trip, but I'm just going to show you. Did any of you even ask God when Lauren stood up and said, we need help across the way? Did any of you ask God and say, is that me, Lord? So a few of us are open. Why? Because we think all this is, is for me. Watch the space. How can we love out if we love ourselves so much? This church will be transformed when we have a godly concern for others. How does it happen? We have to be emptied of ourselves. You know, the nicest people to be around are those that have experienced this brokenness. The Bible says, he who has been forgiven much, loves much. So after all of this uncomfortable exposing, how on earth, Jesus, can you call this blessed? <laughs> this isn't fun. This is not fun for me to preach. Don't misunderstand my motive here. I have been shaking in the presence of God saying, God, he said to me, Matthew, you tell these people exactly what I tell you to say. Because this is why. If unless I warn you, when you start, why is this thing blessed? Is when you start seeking to pursue and please Jesus with all your life, what you start to see is how far you actually have to go. We're so far from being like Jesus. We've got such a long way to go. The second you start picking up this call to follow Jesus, the very second you do that, you start to see, oh, I'm so far from getting anywhere. And I'll tell you this morning, it is a blessed place to be. Do you know why? Because it will teach you, it will teach you the unconditional love of God. You will hear God say to you, you are precious to me, even in your brokenness. Is your starter understand that the love of God stretches far beyond what you think you've earned. That's our problem with pride. We think whatever God gives us, we've earned it. Not so. But when you start to live with brokenness of spirit, you start to see the unconditional love of God, that in your brokenness, He loves you. You'll sing like Phil Wickham says, I'm so unworthy, yet still you love me. Forever my heart will sing of how great you are. You know how God wins your loyalty? It's not through harsh punishment and law. It's through his love. You just start to see that this God has loved you first before you did anything for him. And he loves you even in your brokenness. You're precious to him. You're precious to him. 
The second thing is this. It will teach you your constant need for Jesus. We never arrive in the Sermon on the Mount. I feel so humiliated being the one having to preach this because for me, I know what I'm really like. But let me tell you, I will never arrive until the day I die. I will need the blood of Jesus to forgive me, to keep me, to shelter me, to cleanse me. And it wouldn't be anywhere else. Only by grace can we enter. Only by grace can we stand. Not by our human endeavors, but by the blood of the Lamb. Being poor in spirit will make Jesus so precious to you. His blood will mean more to you than a million bucks. His blood will mean more to you than the approval of people around you saying, Oh, well done. You're so clever. You're so smart. You're so beautiful. Let me tell you, when you start to see what you really like and what Jesus means to you, that his blood is covering you, that it is the hope of eternal life, it will make you worship him like never before. You never outgrow Jesus. The third thing it will do for you is it will make you marvel not only at what he has done, but his ability to keep us, keep us to the end. Jude 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. It will make you admire Jesus. Because here you'll see a man who lived the Sermon on the Mount. Everything he did, he did for you. Every sin he resisted, he did it for you. So that you can stand before God in his righteousness, in his perfection. And I tell you what, he was a man that suffered. When you start to see how much you need him, and when you try to live this holy life, and you see how he did it without sin, I'm telling you, it blows your mind. Jesus becomes everything to you. If he's not precious to you, you're not broken. If you're not broken, you have no hallelujah. Because you can't see. Do you know what my application point is for this morning? Just one. Is run after Jesus. Making the passion and pursuit of your life. And I'm warning you. It's a good warning. I'm preparing you. When you start to follow Jesus, you will start to feel yourself being emptied out. You'll see your weakness. You'll see your shame. You'll see your sin. Embrace it. Go, yes, Lord. It's driving me to Christ. I'm moving forward. The only person who is interested in Jesus is the person who gets to be poor in spirit. Go for it. You will learn how to fight the good fight. When Satan comes up and says, look at you, you loser you'll say, Christ has died. When you're down in the dust and the Sermon on the Mount has got you in this place and it's squirming, you're squirming because God's dealing with you, you'll say, God, praise your name. It's what I've asked for. Because in this, it drives me to Christ. That's the point. Drives me to the need for the Spirit. It makes me worship Him. Let's pray. Lord, I want you more. 
I want you more, Lord, than anything else. As a church, Lord, we are nothing without you. We are a bunch of people who have experienced grace. Grace coming to show us what we like and how much we need Jesus. Oh, Lord, would you do this in us? Would you empty us of our need for ourselves, our self-sufficiency, our pride, our false image, that, God, we might embrace Christ? There's so much available of him. I pray for the one this morning who's been shocked by their sin. There's someone here who's just devastated that this is what they really like. Lord, would you show them that it's nothing new to you? You're so comfortable with it because you're offering Christ. And if that's you this morning, the Lord only shows sin because he wants to show you a savior. All you have to say to him is, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, I see my sin. I need you. I need you. Would you rescue me? That's, that's salvation. Well, those of us this morning, I pray, Lord, would this break open a new hunger and thirst for righteousness in us. We want to change, Lord. We want to be ready for your coming. You're going to see us face to face. Oh, Lord, would you do this in our day? You could come tonight. I'll be honest, Lord, I long for it. But we want to be ready for it. We pray for this in your precious son's name. Amen.